Revenge of the 80s Kids has been rated P for podcast. Time once more for 80s Kids Story Hour. So settle down, close your eyes, and I'll begin. Once, long ago, I was driving down a winding country road. I could not shake the feeling that I had driven down this road before, but I knew for a fact I had never been in this part of the UK. When I arrived at the small country house that was my intended destination, the feeling of dread familiarity intensified, only to deepen once more when Justin opened the door to welcome me inside. I told him of my irrational fears and he tried to reassure me. I too have had a brush with the strange and the numinous, he said. Why? There was that time that aliens convinced me to build a spaceship out of one of my old domestic appliances. That wasn't you, I replied. That was Ian, for I remembered the incident well. Nothing seems right today, I said. Oh, I am sorry. I should have explained, said Justin. I am Ian. I developed an implausible plastic surgery technique and swapped bodies with Justin for a lot last night. I was aghast. Was this some kind of twisted joke? If so, it wasn't very funny. Then I heard the sound of screaming coming from the upper floors. Ah, Justin claiming to be Ian said. Justin's awake. He's probably just looked in the mirror. Perhaps I should go and calm him down. Ian Justin went up the stairs and I followed behind, the apprehension still rolling in my stomach. As I ascended onto the landing, I could see Ian, uh, or Justin, I was confused by this time, shouting at Justin, or was it Ian? What have you done to me? Ian thundered, pointing an accusatory finger in Justin's direction. I look like I fell out of a pizza tree and hit every branch on the way down. Come on, Justin Ian soothed Ian Justin. I'm sure they were vegetarian pizzas, and besides, it's not as bad as that time I accidentally turned you into a donkey. I should grab my lawgiver and plug you twice in the chest. Except it's my chest, Ian Justin complained. You are putting this right immediately, he demanded. Oh, sure. The surgery was just a way to pass the time, Justin Ian replied. The real work I've been doing is upstairs. In the attic, Ian Justin asked. I thought I heard funny noises coming from up there. It sounded like a bunch of deformed Muppets were arguing a gothic disco. And that purple light coming down through the holes in the ceiling was just unpleasant. Oh, but this work is wonderful. 
I have gone further than any man before, beyond the bounds of our reality, Justin Ian crowed. Follow me, and I shall show you the seething heart of chaos. With which he bounded up the attic stairs, probably feeling the benefit of being unencumbered by the fruits of many late-night bags of cheese nachos. Ian Justin made to follow him, but I grasped my dear friend's arm. You mustn't, I said. I'm having terrible deja vu. If you go up there, something terrible will happen. What was your first clue, psychic boy? Ian Justin replied. For me, it was mention of the seething heart of chaos. Don't worry, I'm just going to knock him on the head with my novelty reproduction of Excalibur, drag him downstairs, lock the attic, hide the key, force him to put me back in my own body, and we'll all be laughing about this tomorrow. Not at all reassured, I tried to tighten my grip on Justin's arm, but he jerked away from me and continued up the stairs. But it was too late. Justin Ian had already activated his device. A deafening noise pulsed throughout the house. The walls of reality came tumbling down and... Oh look, a pretty dragon. Boom. What's going on? No idea, but it's visually attractive. Maybe there will be a sequel. The end. And they all lived slovenly ever after <laughs> well uh, i think you should go on to peter jackson with that story idea because i think you could probably turn it into a trilogy uh, maybe he could uh yeah well it, it was a bit uh slim so obviously it's a uh a key property for turning into a nine hour three yes. christmas uh, mega epic when you, when you uh, say trilogy you mean splitting the last one obviously into five parts yes it, it, it will be an eight film set yes is that uh, true? Is that true? I, I, I saw Commode moaning about it, but then he joked about the two other films. I didn't know whether he was being serious or not. And I googled, I googled Hobbit four films, and I wasn't really getting anything. So is it true he split the last film in two? That's, no, no. I was being, I was joking. I was joking. Good. Uh, Good. It check. feels like I believe it's two, but uh, or possibly not. Or who knows? Anyway, it, it has become traditional now to. Uh, it's funny Douglas Adams made a joke a trilogy in four parts and now that's how trilogies seem to be milled out because it's like part one part two part three part one and part three part two so it's only a matter of time before it's part one part one part one part two two. so yes Hollywood is so relieved they no longer have to include an ending with their film well, uh, yes, if, if I was a trilogy, what I think I would be is starter, main course and dessert, because uh, I am, of course, Leo, one of the 80s kids. Joining me tonight are Ian, another of the 80s kids, and if you were a trilogy, Ian, what trilogy would you be? I think I'd be like an incomplete trilogy. They made parts one and two, but three never happened. There's like a fan campaign to like get this thing done. It'd be like one of those, what are they called? When you pledge money, Kickstarter. Kickstarter. There'll be a Kickstarter that didn't quite get the budget. Anyway, that'd be me. And uh, also join us at Justin. And if you were a trilogy, Justin, what trilogy would you be? Uh, yeah, I, I would be. I would be definitely a a prequel of trilogies that no one really wanted in the first place. Now, Yay! I, I saw you more as, a, as an outstanding cartoon film, which then had two unwanted sequels later to milk some money out the franchise. <laughs> uh, but we all have our own trilogies tonight, oh, yes. uh, because it is, of course, or today, depending on when you are listening, because, of course, we're continuing our trail through the alphabet of not forgotten, but perhaps uh, films that deserve a little bit more attention, in our opinion, for good reasons or ill. We have our random name picker and we have 
nine films covering the letters D, E, F on here. And the random name picker has told us that the first person to hit us with their D, and that it isn't a rap thing, so don't worry, things aren't about to get a bit fishy, uh, is Justin. Oh, my word. Okay, so this is a, this is a film that actually is fairly recent, so, but, I, uh, but I think it's worth talking about. And that film is Dread. Oh, right, okay, yes. Now the we are obviously not going to cover this. it in the show because it's 2012, and, and until it gets to 2020, I guess, then we start looking back at the films of the 20-teens. Uh, we're, we're way off from that, so I thought it was a pretty safe bet. Yes, that seems like uh, So, yes, Dread. So, now, as as a, a fan of the comic book, and someone who's obviously sat through originally and endured the uh, the, the, the first film effort... Obviously, I was somewhat nervous at a new Dread film, so uh, I kind of apprehension. I I kind of sat and watched it. Um, so Dread, well, what can I say? They made some good choices in terms of stylistically. I think they decided to make it a little bit more kind of realistic and less kind of crazy sci-fi future. Which, to be honest, the comics kind of had their starting point on. on. Uh, and I think that was kind of a good a good idea to kind of bring it down on a more uh, a kind of earthy level. I thought that for the first time we get a portrayal of Judge Dredd, who well, he doesn't remove his helmet for one thing, so there's a tick in the box for accuracy. Uh, I think Carl Urban is a very good Dredd. He's very convincing, and they, he sells that kind of universe. The character is spot on. I think um, that visually, all the kind of kit and the, and the and the uniform is brilliant. That's a that's a very clever. Um, cinematic adaptation of of the very kind of silly over the top sci-fi trappings that we've seen in the comics that the first film kind of went more like yeah i think it's a very credible film there were some criticisms that was a, that, you know the plot line was a bit like the raid but um i think that's they would have been made approximately about the same time so that's that's one of those unfortunate coincidences um i had some criticisms to me, there are a couple of the shots, like the first sequences were just like a transit van. And, you know, at the end, I was expecting flying ships and I just get a big truck turning up with a paddy wagon for, with, the, with the Justice Department. So that didn't quite feel like, you know, the, the world I know. It could have done with a little bit more, perhaps, money spent on it. Um, however, I just thought the stuff that happened in the tower block was excellent, and there was some nice little references there to fans, some little little kind of joke in jokes, and I think generally a very good film. I think it kind of captured the spirit of it perfectly, and um, yeah, it was I'm very pleased that they made it, and I hope they do more. I haven't seen it. Uh, right, okay, so we're going to have to stop the podcast at this point, so Ian can immediately go and watch Dread. I'm surprised you haven't seen it. Ian? How did this how did this come about? Because uh, how it wasn't out for very long, probably. That's one of the reasons. I I'm not over enthused. I mean I've I've read a, a little bit of dread, by little bit I do mean quite minimal. I am aware due to the gift of Wikipedia of the overall scope of the series, I bought a few of the audio plays that for for dread that which summed up some of the major storylines like the um high judge Cal uh, saga and uh, the war, be- war with East Meg One, they would turn into like two hour long audio things by Dirk Mag back in the 90s. But overall, it's well, not. Even not from the, the fan of 2000 AD, obviously not everyone is that familiar with the with the character. But I just thought, as a someone who watched sci fi films, I'm quite surprised you didn't see it. 
This is the thing. I mean, old Dread was everybody's like, what the hell is this? And then at the end they came out and were like, well, I don't know what that was. Uh, if they didn't know. Whereas this was uh, obviously burdened with that thing of, oh, that's that thing that had Sylvester Stone. Oh, I think I'm very keen on that. And then every single person who's ever then encountered it went, well, I didn't go and see it because I thought it would be rubbish. And I thought, like, holy hell, how is there not a sequel to this film? This film is amazing, blah, 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 blah. And it just kind of, it suddenly, you know, you transform people from not being that bothered as they walk into the cinema to being like, that was the awesomest thing ever as they come out. So uh, it was just a bit of a, you know, as a phenomenon. I mean, uh, the first one wasn't that expensive. And there, there's actually a chance, a slim chance, that it might get a sequel, possibly. Everybody is hoping. Everybody is hoping. Well, yeah, if he's just why haven't I seen it? I never saw a trailer for it. I never knew it was on. I only knew it was there when it was no longer there. And everyone was saying, oh, what a pity it never made any money. It never came up. No, I think that's a definite thing that you've put your finger on there. The other big marketing mistake they made was that uh, it was Dread 3D. Uh, unfortunately, the key audience of people who were going to hunt this down, and I know this because in uh, Nottingham, for example, when I went to see it, it opened on the Friday in 3D only. They had a 2D print, but they didn't show the first 2D showing of Dread until the Sunday evening at 4, 4 p.m. So... Presumably there was this desultory 3D show where a few people kind of bobbed in. And then I went into that showing and I arrived early and it was rammed. It was absolutely crazy. And I bet the cinema were like, this is a bit weird. Nobody goes to see this in 3D. And now we put on one 2D show and the entire like cinema is absolutely even because all the people who wanted to who were that you know trying to track it down were the kind of people like i will not watch a 3d movie they're terrible it gives me a headache i hate wearing the glasses it makes the picture dimmer give me a nice 2d movie any day of the week so they completely they failed to market it sufficiently and when they did market it they tried to get people to go and see it in 3d when really they preferred to be 2d and they didn't make enough 2d print so people lots of people probably just went oh not only am i not that bothered about seeing it but i'm not certainly not going to go and see it in 3d very similar in fact you think they'd have learned their lesson with drive angry which after it stopped being 3d only in the cinema and it came out on dvd became this massive cult movie which i've now occurred to me somebody could have picked for their D but didn't. Uh, Drive Angry uh, I haven't picked it for my D but I'm just going to say quickly there, that was another one where people flocked to go and see it afterwards in 2D and became hugely entertaining but nobody wanted to see it in 3D only. The 3D only thing is perhaps the worst thing that, yeah. a cinema, that, that the distributors could do to a film because it means that it irritates people who don't want to see it in 3D and effectively tends to kill the movie most times. Not every time, but most times. Yeah. I remember coming out of Dread, and, and I think Dread fans coming out of Dread were like, or even just 2000 AD fans, you don't have to be a particular fan of Dread. I mean, if you read 2000 AD, you read Dread because it was there. We're just like, yep, that was it. Nailed it, more or less. It was... It was we were talking in the first Alphabet show about the difference between translating for meaning and translating for nuance. And I think that this dread 
definitely translated for nuance. It couldn't do all the things that they could just draw in the comic strip, but they wanted to give the Dread experience. And for that reason, the other thing that obviously didn't help it at the cinema was the fact that it was tremendously violent. Like, really, really violent. Yeah, I remember that's what my dad said because my dad, my dad used to be art editor of 2008, so I was very interested in his uh, his view on it. And uh, he just said, "Well, that was very noisy and violent, so I think maybe it wasn't quite quite the audience." You know, it was also of- criticised for not being satirical enough, uh, as the source material generally was. Yeah, well, the reason for that was because as it had been crafted with great care and love by Alex Garland. It was a Dread movie. I mean, it's a Dread movie. It's a movie that happens in the universe of Judge Dread. But I think it's rather underplayed and uh, because we haven't got a sequel coming out and because it did so poorly, I think Judd, poor old Judge Anderson in this gets completely ignored, which is a shame because... I started to get a bad feeling about five minutes in when Judge Anderson turns up. You know, oh, you can't do Dread and Anderson in the first movie. I thought this is not going to go well. And then it went beautifully. The partnering of Dread and Anderson in this situation was fine. It worked really well. And what that meant is that it's not really a Dread movie. It's a Dread and Anderson movie. It's a Mega City One movie. Now, whereas a pure Judge Dread story should have ridiculous satire in it, Judge Anderson was always like the let's take it seriously as a sci-fi trope character in Mega City One. She, she wasn't just a fascist. She She was a person that, a character that the authors wanted to do some more serious stories with that hence the sort of psychic angle and I think that's kind of why Alex Garland brought her in in a way to temper because Judge Dredd is ridiculous and he still is but Anderson kind of brings an extra layer of seriousness in and I think that the important thing about satire is that um what you're talking about there is kind of the early 80s 2000 AD and and, you know, they were very much a product of that time. We've talked about this before. I have. Um, however, we're making a, they're making a film for now, you know, and satire isn't a huge, as we've just talked about, it's not a huge thing now. Um, and, and so they're making a film that's kind of feels more contemporary than trying to emulate every aspect of the source material. So, and for that, I think that's, that's fine, you know? And it's not that it didn't have sort of satirical edge to it, because it did. It was just that it was tempered by having more stuff in it than yeah. just being a satirical gag fest. So yeah, uh, Dread, it was, it, yes, a, a, an amazing uh, opening to the show and a crazy revelation. I, I couldn't, I could, if you haven't seen Dread, I heartily recommend it. Oh, yeah. And I'm absolutely. not just talking to Ian I'm talking to everyone else as well. Uh, but I think you do have to... I mean, one of the things about it was, is, that it is, because of its level of violence in a sci-fi cartoon book kind of environment, it's kind of 80s. That's yeah. where they brought the 80s, because it was... We don't really do that anymore. If it's a, a fun sci-fi adventure, then the level of violence tends to be dialed down these days. But, uh, yeah, Dread was in many ways more evocative of uh, classic Robocop than, indeed, the Robocop remake was. So, you know. 
so uh, the name picker has spoken again, and it is time for my D. Uh, I'm guessing that I'm probably going to be alone in this one, although maybe someone will have seen Dead of Night from the Ealing Studios. <laughs> I'm not entirely certain. Talk about it. Maybe I have. Right. OK. Ealing Studios, of course, famous for the Lady Killers and the Titfield Thunderbolt and making quaint little black and white uh, British comedies. One of the other films that they made uh, was actually a science fiction film called uh, The Man in the White Suit about a man who invents a a completely um, indestructible yet lightweight fabric for making clothes out of. And that's kind of an interesting piece of mid 20th century industrial satire, which people kind of forget that the Ealing Studios made. Dead of Night is an early example of portmanteau horror that everyone forgot that Ealing Studios made. There's a kind of dual thing. The further away we get from it in time, the more bizarre it actually becomes because there's a sort of manner. First of all, it's a collection of like five five or six ghost stories wrapped up in an overarching story about a man who visits a country house uh, who's never been there before and yet feels that everything is eerily familiar. And he's so unmanned by this that the other people at the country house are all trying to reassure him that having such a strong, nay, uh, nay, you know, uh, verging on uh, the edge of, of psychic sense of deja vu, that, you know, strange things happen to everyone. And all the other stories are in a, you know, service of this idea that strange things happen to everyone. Uh, some of the stories are... For our modern palette, you know, you can see what's going to happen and hear what's coming a mile off. But the difference is because it's all in black and white and because the dialogue happens at a pitch that's so very jolly hockey sticks, you kind of forgive the cliche because you understand that this was before, you know, and it must have been quite a surprise to people going to see this Ealing Studios, essentially horror movie. Um, and, and you know, you'd think, well, some of it is just as gentle and as quaint as you'd imagine. And then you get to the end. And in a way, all of the kind of fairly tame stuff that's come before it dissolves in what is to this day one of the most disturbing conclusions to a horror movie that exists. And, and yeah, you walk away from the film having had a, a jolly good time, uh, yet at the same time it it, uh, it succeeds where so many things following it have failed in leaving you feel genuinely a little bit spooked and disturbed, uh, particularly by the latter part of the the, the the entertainment. So yes, this is Dead of Night. Wow. Now I need to. You've, you've sold this to me. I, I have, I think I've seen this because I'm looking, looking at some of the things. I remember the ventriloquist, uh, yes. one and there's bits. That, so I, however, I can't really remember much about the whole film. So I need to revisit this because, um, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, a classic. Yeah, yes, we've, we've, we've gone back further than I think we've ever gone back before. Yes, the first story in particular is about a man who has a crash in a, a racing car and then uh, has a weird premonition. And, you know, there's no beat in that story that you, you cannot see coming from yeah. a mile off. But 
I think that Portmanteau actually works better when in an hour and a half to an hour and 40 minutes, they fit in five or six stories. And that means if you don't like one, another one will be along in a minute. I think where Portmanteau gets bogged down is if they either extend the running time to give the stories longer to run or where they don't have enough budget to do more than two or three stories, then it becomes a bit pointless. You can watch it at any point. You think, uh, this is a bit rubbish. And then five minutes later, it's gone and you're not thinking about it anymore. Also, unlike a lot of portmanteau films that followed it, the framing mechanism story is never, it never dawdles, but they do give it a proper and appropriate amount of screen time. And so therefore it becomes like another story. And that's something that's really difficult. Portmanteau films really wrestle with their framing mechanisms yes. oftentimes. Whereas this actually does feel like this is the other story that is happening. If you're bored with the story you're watching, you can think back to the bizarre framing mechanism and that, that keeps you going. Uh, I take it you have not encountered this film at all, Ian? No, but I've seen others like it, you know, the anthology film, the waiting room in hell uh, sort of film. Everyone yeah, tells that's the, story. the thing you see. I mean, what's really what's really bizarre about it is that it's a, one of the very first portmanteau horror films, and yet at the same time it's in many ways superior to just about every portmanteau horror film that followed right. it. There have been pretty poor examples of the genre, haven't they? I mean, I've got, I've got a soft spot for this type of film, but I must admit it is littered with absolute dross through the kind of history of film. So, yeah, that's just another reason why I need to revisit this, really, because I, I, my recollection is a bit a little hazy. The, the makers of the current uh, new kid on the block in Portmanteau Horror, VHS, could learn a lot. Yeah. Because the v- the VHS framing mechanism is exactly what you'd expect. It's completely pointless. They're all, it's perfunctory to an insulting degree. Uh, yes. And they've done that twice now in exactly the same way. And then the, the film itself is, in fact, that idea of some of them are just boring and terrible. And then one of them's like, oh, that's quite interesting. And then another one's just like, and you, you just get this complete mixed bag. And I think that, you know, as an audience, as audiences, we should stop, like, accepting that. It's like, no, really, you could try and bat a little bit higher across the board. But there we go. So that's, uh, yes, that's Dead of Night. Ian, bring forth your D from the land of D. Uh, the land of Dinus. I think this has been talked about before, but I'm going to go there again because it simply is the best option I have on my D list, my D shortlist. So, uh, gentlemen, how do you feel about diving back into the world of the Dark Crystal? Oh, good yeah. lord. Yes, we didn't really talk about that at any great length. Yes, of course. Tell us, Ian, why did you select this and bring it forth? I think I must have seen it, well, originally I've seen it on, would have seen it on video, I suppose in the early to mid-80s when I was quite young. And of course, as a child, the overall impression you have of Dark Crystal is what a dour, miserable film this is. It is very grim. And quite nasty in places. Uh, it's a very odd tonal pitch for a film. And you can see they did a 180 later when they did Labyrinth, which is, you know, let's do Dark Crystal with jokes and songs and written by one of the Monty Python crew. Uh, so Dark Crystal came, I saw it in its grimness and it went away again. And I dare say it would have given me nightmares at the time. But I was very fortunate to be friends with somebody who was... He was quite into his art, and he had The Dark Crystal on video, and he frequently watched it, and so I 
I reviewed it again and I began to understand it because as a kid you just don't quite understand the subtlety of some of the things they're going for in this. Like the Skeksis and the Mystics are the same dudes! It's like that just went over my head as a kid. It's, it's, the dualism was a hard thing to get your head around. Once I did though, it, it gave me a whole new level of, of amazement about the film. Cause I was very fascinated about that whole kind of dual nature. Same two beings being the same being. So th- then I had to sort of have a great renaissance, I suppose, in my uh, teens about the film. Uh, so I viewed it very thoroughly as much more aware of its structure and things. But the capstone was when I went to university and one of my housemates, she had a very rare art book that came out the same time as Dark Crystal. And this was the mythology and artwork book about it all. And just reading through it, you get reams and reams of really interesting background information that existed at the time. Because when they made these puppets, they didn't make puppets. They, they seriously gave thought into each character and what they wore and what they did. And, you know, so each of those Skeksis has a job and has a mirrored job in all the, all the mystic characters. And so all this information was laid out for you. There's a <coughs> wonderful book which showed you the cycle of the world. It showed you where the, where the Ura Skeks, which is what the actual composite species of cord came from and that they originally were 18 of them and things like that and eight was the minimum they needed to reunify at the end so they were down to the literally the dregs of a chance the uh the splitting of because it was a benevolent thing when they tried to split themselves it was trying to heal themselves because these were outcasts these 18 or skeks because they had darkness within them initially the skeksis weren't evil they were a bit jovial, but they kind of fell into, what's the word, um, decadence. They fell into decadence. And you know the Morag, that character with only one eye? She, yeah, yeah. she lost her first eye because she, she sacrificed it to witness the first conjunction. It's like, oh man, that's a really cool little small little detail. As I say, if, if a film has a good mythology, you're, you're always a big sucker for it if you're going to go fanboying it. So the Dark Crystal, really became something I had a lot of affection and time for and a willingness to indulge with. But it is it is a grim film. It's a grim film about death and genocide and general nastiness. Let's also let's talk about the puppetry. Pretty darn good. Those Landwalker puppets were, were amazing, I thought, that they had. And, and then they all fall off a cliff and die. Because it's dark crystal and nice things can't happen here. No <laughs> songs in this film. So, yes, I, children would have been terrified by it. So it's an odd pitch for a film. But, yes, Justin, I, I feel you must have something to say about this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I look, when I got myself a DVD player, it was one of the first ones I got because... He says it's visually stunning. And now it's not a film. I think you're right, really. It's not a film that I will watch again and again because I think, yes, the inherentness, although now I need to watch it again, I feel, because <laughs> sometimes. But yeah, that darkness makes it, this is not a light family film that is re- repeat viewing. Um, however, I remember just being kind of totally entranced by it when I was younger. You know, the fact that there's, it's just all puppets. It's this kind of strange, complete, you know, it's a virtually, you know, it might as well be an animated film, really. You are taken to somewhere completely, you know, manufactured. So I love all that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, I, I thought the designs for the sketches are fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 um, I've always liked the, uh, the illustrator, Brian Froud, who also works on Labyrinth and do the kind of the goblin designs. And it's very interesting. It's something about that style. It's kind of very British, kind of folklore-y. It kind beautiful, of draws beautiful of, grotesque, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it draws on a lot of kind of older illustrations. It kind of comes from a darker place, mixed with a bit of kind of hippie-ish stuff as well. Um, 
And, um, I, yeah, I think it's beautiful, and I probably need to try and get this art book, because <laughs> that sounds amazing. I wish I'd seen that. It's, I would have been, if I'd seen that, I would have been totally, rare. I would have had that if I, it would have been a thing. I was a bit too young, I think, for going and buying my own books or even knowing such things existed at the time, but I think it's incredible. I mean, it's, yeah, not an easy watch. Um, but yeah, as you said, the puppetry, I mean, you are just taken to that world. You've got no concept of that's people working all of that and then making that. It just is very, and because it's a physical effect, I always think these things have a much more long lasting appeal because, you know, that, that's, that stays at that level, you know, it, 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 is, it is real, it feels real, just like the Muppets feel real, if it's done well, that kind of artistry, um, so yeah, yeah, great, great stuff. When you come to think about it, it is the great the great thing about the uh, Dark Crystal is that uh, children of the 80s, they come back and look at the Dark Crystal and go, seriously, this was for children, was it? <laughs> okay, uh, uh, but of course... I think part of that was that it was kind of an accident born of the fact that the sort of apocalyptic uh, tone of the film is brought about because it's a kind of a budget saver. If they'd have wanted to do a sort of more rounded fantasy world where some bits of it were okay and other bits were a bit more apocalyptic, you know, in a more sort of... Obviously, again, it plays off the sort of uh, ethic of the the Lord of the Rings in that the Skeksis Mountain is the dark place. And and then they didn't really have a lot of in-between. You you don't have that kind of Tolkien-esque kind of here's a city and there's another kingdom. And the reason they didn't have that is because for everything they wanted to have, they'd have to have yet another set more puppets and stuff like that which is kind of holding them back so they kind of made this world that was devoid of much else but these sort of horrible evil creatures and the, the last of the gelflings and you know just a few people scattered hither and indeed yon you know they kind of went ahead and they made the project and then afterwards they kind of went yeah it is a bit Bit depressing, really, isn't it? I mean, it's, you know, depressing for children. It's depressing for adults. It's just a depressing story. It has to be said. I mean, it's good. It has a happy end, but in, in the a happy, but very bizarre spiritual ending. But it, in the eighties, you have to take what you've got. You have to take the resources that you have because otherwise the option is to go. Let's just not bother if we can't produce what we, you know, I don't feel that the Dark Crystal is what they wanted it to be uh, in terms of a fully rounded fantasy universe. But they're like, well, let's see if people go for this. And then if we get more money together, maybe we could do something a little bit more upbeat. But of course, people were like, no, I'm too wigged out by that. I can't now go any further down this road. But the, and these days it is the kind of project that just get nobbled. You just go, no, this is going to be really depressing and downbeat. Let's let's go and make uh, the Hangover Four instead. Yes, you well, know, and you, that's what would happen. You, you do think if they just put time resources into telling a bit more family friendly story, you don't have to go full full kitty out on it. Maybe if they just adapted The Hobbit back in the eighties instead, there would have been a whole subgenre of puppet movies, realistic puppet movies instead of uh, Muppets. Uh, I think that's kind of the point. I think that Ardman survive because. They took care to say, well, we're not just going to show our fabulous uh, plasticine animation skills. We're also going to spend some time and look really hard to make the, the topic matter, make everything come together. And I think that's, you know, there's, you know, the Dark Crystal story is fine, 
but it's not possibly the best story they could possibly have told, given the resources that they had at their disposal. And I think that's often a thing that the enemy of the, the, the good is, is the great. And they use that too casually to say, oh, we'll produce something a little bit lackluster and people will understand. And they don't. So it, it all goes a bit wrong. So yeah, that, that, that does anyway. happen. Uh, the name of the uh, book, the name of the book, Justin, is World of the Dark Crystal. Okay. So there we go. I will investigate that. So moving on, apparently the random name generator has a thing for not being that random, or at least uh, obviously true randomness sometimes doesn't look random, but it's dictated anyway that Justin should go <laughs> first. Uh, so uh, once more, Justin. What uh, so, is your E film? So keeping, keeping on a similar kind of genre, of, certainly with fantasy, uh, I, I have chosen for E Excalibur. Now, Excalibur was a film that my first memory of this was when clearly someone who wasn't quite in the know decided to show Excalibur to a bunch of, um, let's say, fairly young children at school, Ooh. thinking, oh, it's King Arthur, it's magic. And I remember I, I was maybe 12, the, you know, it was put on. And then, well, there's a certain scene at the beginning that I say that involves uh, something that maybe 12 year olds shouldn't be watching. And the, the teacher just rushed forward and pressed the button and went, oh, yes, uh, it's, uh, we think we're watching something else rather flustered, um, which is hilarious at the time. Um, but yes, uh, Excalibur. Now, I think I would say now I know it's a product of its time in terms of the kind of look and, you know, the kind of slightly hippie-ish kind of imagery and stuff. But I think there has never really been a film that captures the mythology of King Arthur um, as much as this. And there haven't been a great deal of attempts, to be honest. But I think it completely nails the kind of classic uh, feel for me on, on film. Because it's pretty graphic. It's got a bit of a sex thrown in at the beginning, um, but mainly it's because it's a lot of blood and gore um, all the way through, which is I, I found tremendously exciting uh, as I was watching it. It kind of captures, I think, the closest thing I've seen to what I imagine Merlin to be, because what's his name? I'm trying to remember uh, the actor's name. Nicole Williamson. Yeah, that's it. He kind of portrays this very sinister, weird, strange Merlin. It's not Disney's Merlin. It's not like the Gandalf kind of clone that we, we've we seen Merlin, this white-bearded kind of... It's it's an odd, strange kind of character that is a bit mischievous, a bit kind of not exactly pure. There's something dodgy going on there. I guess that's the nature of magic, really. It kind of can be used for both ways. Uh, strange speech as well. It kind of does this... You know, he talks in this very odd kind of way a peculiar way that it just adds to that kind of mystery and otherworldliness that i think merlin has to have you know he's kind of part god he's not meant to be just some old guy that's learned magic uh so the casting's very good and of course there's some kind of early performances by i think Neil, liam neeson is in this patrick stewart at one point there's like lots of kind of famous kind of faces appear but i just think it's a feels kind of very real and at the same time also having this kind of mythology mythological kind of charm to it and magic and wonder it's very much an adult film um you know it's this is not a kind of family friendly kind of fantasy romp and i think that's what i admire really about it it's it's fairly brutal at times and i don't know it's it, to me i've never moved on from that in terms of visually for what i perceive that mythology to be as i understand it the director 
wanted to do an adaptation of Lord of the Rings, uh, but decided he couldn't quite get that. So let's downscale his ambition slightly. Let's just adapt to Le Mort de Arthur. You know, that, that's going to be yeah. an e- easier one to put in a two-hour film. That makes sense, actually. It had a great opening shot. I think, Leo, you talked to me about this, of the, the, it's, the horses, it's night, and the horses come up over the hill, they're in shadow, but they're black lit with orange. So the steam coming out the horse's noses, because it's cold, uh, appears orange. It's like almost like the horse is breathing fire. Yes, it's it's a film I did track down and watch because it's just one of those films you have to track down and watch. Because they have to rumble through so much kind of history in this film, in many ways Merlin is one of the more distinct characters because he's so odd. And I believe he was, a, he was actually a necromancer in this film, wasn't he? That's how they pitched his yeah. magical abilities. And yes, he had that metal helmet stuck to, firmly to his head. I can't say, I remember like flashes of imageries, and yes, there were nipples uh, in this movie uh, linger in my mind, uh, but I, not, a, not a whole lot that is coherent, but then it's, it's an awful lot of story to rumble through. There's a book you can split into a trilogy very, where's our definitive King Arthur trilogy, ladies and gentlemen? Well, I'm working on it at the moment, but uh, I'm, I, yes, it is true, uh, because one of the reasons why I'm working on it is because uh, King Arthur is one of the stories that people feel at liberty to do their, oh, I'm going to do my own take. And they're like, yeah, but where's the normal take for the 20th century? And the reason for this is several fold, uh, not least because King Arthur got invoked a lot during the First World War, that the idea of knightly chivalry, and, and to a certain extent, the, the once and future king and sword in the stone, are children's books that try to espouse and encapsulate a sort of Edwardian notion of knightliness and chivalry, a kind of early 20th century romance of that type of thing, uh, without all the inconvenient stuff about, yes, but why is it chivalric to go and dig a pit in Flanders and sit in it slowly dying of foot rot while shooting at a bunch of Germans who want to be there just as little as we do in order for some kind of bizarre political chicanery to go off by a bit. Where is the honour in that? And uh, at the time, of course, everybody was like, shut up and sit in the trench. Um, but, you know, people have come to appreciate that. And, and therefore, until the 60s, King Arthur's name was mud because it had been used as a propaganda tool to get young men to go and kill themselves for no particularly good reason. And then in the 60s, the hippies came along and and then it suddenly it was like King Arthur is like, uh, it's open season for, you know, Hearn the Hunter and, you know, making it all about nature. And and, and then, and of course, there's a feminist reading in which Morgan Le Fay is actually the good guy and the evil men pervert and twist. And they, but the actual like, yeah, but what about the medieval history of the kings of England in which King Arthur was made up out of whole cloth by some guy who just liked to make up stuff and call it history? Because at the time it was the medieval times and people were like, who's going to know? Who's going to know that I've made this up? It's not like in a couple of you know, hundred years, people are going to come across with some kind of science that allows them to to define by digging things carefully out of the ground that I'm just talking a load of rot 
that's ridiculous. So I'm just going to make all this stuff up. And then later on, when the people still thought it might actually be properly historical, the Fred, the Normans come along and they kind of turn it into a Christian romance. And yeah, King Arthur himself has got a troubled history in that when you think of what King Arthur is today, it's actually made of little bits of stuff that has been taken and twisted throughout history and so to make a definitive king arthur is a really difficult job not impossible just really difficult because you have to tread carefully in amongst all the places today's king arthur comes from apparently they are working on a new film which i think jude Ooh. law will be king arthur okay um which i look forward to eagerly because i'll tell you what that clive owen effort Oh dear. Oh no, no, no. Let's, let's do for realism. Yes, let's go for some kind of realistic thing. It's like, no, we want to see. Take any kind of mythology and magic out of it, the setting. That's exactly what everyone wants to know. Yeah, exactly. It was, it was, yeah. So basically, it's, I think it's something that people are hungry for. And now the Lord of the Rings is out of the way. That's yeah, interesting. Well, that's, that's good. I'm, I'm happy about that. What did, yeah, you, what did uh, you think of the Merlin series, by the way? I never saw it because I wasn't in the country. Uh, well, it's a children's show, you know. I mean, Harold, or at least they, they went on for quite a while. And I watched the first three or four episodes and I just couldn't take the fact that it was like, let's take all these great characters from yeah. the mythology of King Arthur and turn them all into uh, stupid, nasty minded idiots. Yeah, I think that's a fair assumption. It, it 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 plays fast and loose with mythology. It's a separate thing. Uh, it's got it's got names you might recognise with the mythology, but that's about it, really. Yes. Just still to round off, though, there was a general European wide reenchantment with mythology pasts in the early 20th century, because the Scandinavian countries were really now rediscovering their kind of Viking mythology. You had Prussia and their sort of gym fairy tales. And of course, England, what did we have? It's King Arthur and Robin Hood, which are kind of like poor opposites. King Arthur is the embodiment of, of the kind of the perfect state, and Robin Hood is, is more an anarchist uh, sort of folk hero. Uh, yeah, Robin Hood uh, it fares a lot better in the recent times I mean, not greatly a lot better, but uh, there are some things which could be pointed to, which are like, this is one kind of definitive Robin Hood and this is another. Whereas, yeah, King Arthur's never really got the fair play by contrast. So, yes, there we go. Ian, you have a letter E to share with us. Oh, God, do I? This is this is actually my my weakest choice. I've I've, uh, made a shortlist and uh, I kind of regard them all as... All is kind of dregs. It's like we've got to find a film that you know we haven't talked about before, and I can I've seen it, and I have something to say about it. And the best E I'm sorry to say I could find was Explorers. Uh, oh, good God! How could that be a drag? Well, I quite, well I do quite enjoy it. I, it was uh, it was something like because my my dad. My parents separated when I was young. My dad moved to Australia and I was stayed in the UK with my mum for a very long time. But he would, he went out of his way to try and maintain contact with me. He, he would send me, uh, he would get things on video and send them over to me. And Explore was just one of the things he sort of posted over to me going, oh, I think you might like this film because you were like science fiction. It didn't do very well in the cinema. I think it because it came out the same, it's, they're blaming Live Aid because it came out the same time. So it did poor in the cinemas and then disappeared, but it gained a bit more of traction on video as 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 the great second attempt become memorable as it was back in the 80s 
It's a nice story about imagination and exploration. It's got a, the, the central conceit of, you know, the kids have fed them through dreams, uh, the technology to build a, a force field that can move around. And, uh, once you've got a bubble that you can go anywhere in, uh, it, all of a sudden, it gets range, of course, they go into space and they meet aliens. And of course, the aliens become a parallel for them, for the aliens themselves are mere children, we later learn. It's got a Ethan Hawke, River, was it, it was River Phoenix, wasn't it? Yeah. And some other kid who always fell, 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 you know, he fizzled out of fame, I think, in the 90s. But it was a good child cast. I think it's, it's great imagination. It's, uh, you know, it's kind of misfits hanging together. He kind of gets the, the girl in the end as well. It's a great adventure romp, I think. And the core idea is good enough that, goodness me, you can go anywhere in the universe. Kids can suddenly go anywhere in the universe. Here's a concept that could have been a series. Anyway, uh, I, I haven't done much, too much to say about it, unfortunately, other than I tremendously enjoyed it and watched it a fair few number of times and loved the concept. And the, uh, I suppose it was, was it computer graphics at the time, the bubble? I can't recall. No, it would be a visual effect. A visual effect. Like a matte effect. Probably. But uh, these days with CGI, it would have been easy. So kids uh, build a scrap, build a, a spaceship uh, themselves in, in a scrapyard challenge sense, and off they go to see aliens uh, and have adventures on a mysterious edge. Uh, gentlemen, uh, pour forth your memories of this film. Oh, that's great. I mean, it's absolutely, you know, uh, what would you call this? A kind of a Spielberg clone? It is, kind yeah. of you know that kind of thing that came from, and you know, Goonies would be the same in the same category, even though that that was produced by Spielberg. But it's very much a product of that eighties Friends, slightly quirky Friends. It was a kind of proto kind of geek, isn't it? Really, it's it's those kind of archetypes that have yet to be kind of heralded as. Uh, so at the time, they kind of ridiculed these characters, and they, yeah, like say outcasts, and they something happens. In this case, it's 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 alien. Uh, involvement by dreams and I, I i remember watching this being entranced and you know it's always wishful film on this kind of thing completely who doesn't want to find you know the pirate willie's ghost uh, uh treasure or doesn't want to have a thing that can fly around you know i mean i think that's uh having aliens visit you or give you tech to, to stuff so it's it's completely like wow i wish i could have that with me and my mates doing these kind of crazy things and yeah, it's a, it's a very weathered addition to that genre. Um, I, yeah, I can't really say much about that, really. I, I enjoyed it. It was one of those things that was always on some Christmas or Christmas or other I would watch again. Uh, yeah, good, good fun. Yeah, Explorers. Uh, I remember first seeing Explorers and it was one of the, probably one of the first times in my life I'm like, how have I not seen this movie? How does nobody know anything about this movie? How is this movie how have I come because across this movie? Because Bob Geldof, that's why. Yeah, we can all blame Bob Geldof. Screw you, Bob Geldof. And I bet, I mean, the, the thing about it is that it has many of the features that we, we, you know, we seem to have lost now that I come to think about it, uh, that Spielberg brought along to kids' movies. For example, there was a certain level of artifice that uh, made a kind of verisimilitude, a reality to what what the world these kids lived in that I don't think we bother with anymore. Like one of the things is that uh, parents in Spielberg-esque movies have uh, real lives that are going on in the fringes of the kids' lives and that you as an adult, what viewer, 
will see that and go, oh, this poor kid's got this going on in his family life. Or, you know, it, it, they make, they take the time to make it quite obvious what the relationship between the parents is. And the parents often are made to seem quite real in some way or another. Whereas these days, parents don't really exist, except in a sort of, I'm a parent kind of way. I'm a parent. I'm going to get some parent dialogue. Here's some parent dialogue. Make sure you're back by nine. That kind of thing. And they just do that. Whereas in these films, they try to make out that, you know, they try to talk a little bit about the relationship between parents and children. Plus, the other thing is this idea of the children having a secret world that parents don't know about. For example, training mice to press buttons to swear. Yes. people. I, that I, kind geez. of thing. So, Essentially, the whole thing, like they said, I think there was a whole thing where it was like they took the time and the care to make the children and the parents really real within the fantastic context of what else was happening. And in fact, it was one of the things that was bizarre about Super 8 was the fact that it it tried to do all of those things, but in a way it was too crafted. There has to be a kind of clumsiness about the way that it's done, that then your brain goes, no, this is real. Whereas in Super 8, all that had been designed to within an inch of its life, and it suddenly became kind of hollow because they were trying too hard to put all of this stuff into a Spielberg-esque thing. It was like, no, you've you've overdone it. Because sometimes the way that they made parents real was that they were the most boring parents that you could possibly imagine but they somehow managed to artistically craft the the you know these parents are boring and they managed to put that in a way where it's like it, it became a source of conflict like children believe in magic parents are just like yeah but that doesn't exist they're like you just don't get me do you and that's it that's all you need whereas if every parent has an interesting home life or is a single parent or is about to get a divorce it suddenly becomes like a soap opera and you're like this is is not real so yeah explorers like other classics like flight of the navigator is one of these films where it's like we don't make kids films like this anymore and it's a shame because kids really deserve entertainment of that quality and if you look at what kids get that passes for entertainment these days, it doesn't come up to this standard. So, yeah, Explorers is definitely something that we we deserved more time and attention, which is just now duly got. And so all that remains is my E. And I'm going to spring one on you now that came up as a result of Justin talking about Lilo and Stitch in the last two, in the 2002 show. And it's one that I'd even forgotten that we hadn't talked about it. And yet, how could I forget this? Because it is actually my favourite Disney film. Of all the Disney films, this is my favourite. And uh, it's not anyone else's favourite, which bizarrely makes it even more my favourite. It is, of course, The Emperor's New Game. Yeah, brilliant. Which I think is absolutely fantastic. I remember going to see that because I have nothing else to do. I was hanging around there was a cinema it was showing emperor's new group which had come out that week i had a couple of hours to kill i went and i watched it this is the year 2000 i'm 25 years of age and i was just transported back to my youth giggling like an idiot throughout the entire i mean i don't know where 
I don't know where this came from. I know that the, the people who were making it knew that they were doing a, a good job in some sense. But the idea of having this crazy thing about uh, an Aztec king who gets turned into a, a mule because he's a, a crazy rampant property developer type. And then but then just the sheer it was like the amount of gags in the movie. It was just gag, 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 hilarious thing, funny thing. The relationship between John Goodman's character and uh, Cusco all the way through the movie just is a real dynamic, uh, odd couple sniping kind of thing. But yeah, and 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 then the villain, of course, and her and Kronk. Uh, is it Isma or Osma or something? Isma. Kronk. Those two, yeah. I have not laughed so much in my life as the moment at which they go to the secret laboratory and <laughs> she goes, pulls the lever, trap door opens, she falls. There's like all this sound of like crocodiles and stuff. And then there's like a dum, 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 dum. Why do we even have that lever? <laughs> it's like, what? Why have you? That's the invention. Every time you turn around, they're doing something else that's new. And every scene is so well played and so well integrated. And I think there's a thing with animation, Disney animation, where animation is what it's all about. But the vocal performances in that movie are so bright and pitched so high. I'm not sure that it's a big film with, you know, like little kids. I think they might find it, I don't know, a little bit weird. But certainly, I think that might be what it is. It might be pitched too old. But, uh, yeah, I certainly have not rarely had such a good time as I have when I'm watching The Emperor's New Groove. And uh, I can't believe that in the year 2000, we just skipped straight forward without even mentioning that it was there. So here it is. Shame on us. And I think, excellent. I'm really pleased you talked about this because I agree. I a lot of Disney films, obviously, from a professional view, I go and see films well, when they were producing 2D animated films with an eye on, you know, paying attention to detail because chances are I might have been working on something based on it. So I look at the kind of artistry. So it often takes me out of the film because I'm not really because, to be honest, you know, the stories aren't don't usually group me anyway. So, however, Emperor's New Group, I must admit, I'm with you. I was laughing hysterically. It was the first, definitely, possibly the funniest Disney film I've ever seen. I thought that, like, yeah, I totally agree. The characterization is brilliant. The guy, uh, Warburton, who did the voice of the tick, uh, who's Kronk, yes. who is just a brilliant character actor anyway. I mean, he just, he always does that role, but he does it like, it's like kind of Buzz Lightyear turned up. Like, to, 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 he's just amazing. And that character is just fat. Yeah, the, I, I, yeah, I, I think it's absolutely amazing. And, um, I miss it again because, yeah, there are bits in it like the bit with the, the the stuff I liked about it was kind of very reminiscent of old cartoons where they kind of break the fourth wall. Kind of they should do this with kind of Daffy Duck and stuff, you know, run off the edge of the screen. Yes, that is and true. I was going to say it's like, like a sort of uber Looney Tunes cartoon. Yeah, absolutely, and that it's one. Oh. The reason I like Stitch, Lilo and Stitch, is because it's got humour more based on that. And this definitely is completely. It's kind of like a crazy like Bob Hope movie, kind of road movie thing with crazy, just insane kind of jokes and and that, yeah, a mix with that kind of uh, Warner Brothers humour, which just works perfectly. 
And, you know, this is the stuff where they're, oh, I, I, there's so many things. Uh, the bit that always made me giggle hysterically was like the bit at the end with the kind of waterfall and their various kind of physical comedy things as they're bashing into the wall and stuff. And it's uh, uh, just brilliant. Yeah, I'm really pleased to you mentioned this, Leo, because it, it's a it's a cracking film. Uh, this falls at an interesting period in time for me, being in the year, was it 2000, was it? 2000. So it's before I get my first nephew. Now, these days I have nieces and nephews uh, to behold. So uh, even though I haven't seen Frozen, I can give you a blow-by-blow account what the film is about, the major, major musical numbers, uh, and so forth. But prior to all that, there was no mandatoriness to go see cartoons, no matter how many people go, yeah, it was quite good, actually. Uh, so it never really came up, and uh, the present batch of small children in my family uh, haven't been introduced to it yet, I don't think. Uh, so I don't have anything to really say about it other than reading the Wikipedia page about what a what a development hell it was, uh, getting executive interference, actually producing a better film than the one uh, the uh, original director had with his vision, believe it or not. So there we are, win for executive interference. Well done. Well, I could say, yeah, I mean, I think I could totally see the fingerprints of that because I remember seeing the directors and they were very concerned about the environmental message that they were sending. And that's why there's a song by Sting in it, because they got Sting on board because it was, a, well, it's going to have an environmental message, which I suppose to a certain extent it does. And they did put their foot down about, no, at no point does the little village get wiped out so Cusco can have a pleasure palace. They move it one hill over and everybody gets to be happy. That's what happens at the end. That's not really a spoiler because the plot is completely irrelevant. Yes. It's like, obviously, this executive was like, can't we just make it funny? Can't we just have that wily Coyote thing? Can we have some of that? And then I think a lot of writers sort of got a bit cheesed off and started doing ridiculous things. I think that's what it's, it's one of those things where one of the funniest things ever comes out of conflict. I can see that the point at which they go, oh yes, I learned how to speak squirrel when I was in the Boy Scouts was like a dare to the executive to say, you can't do that. It's ridiculous. And of course the executive didn't care because he thought it was wacky kid stuff when it isn't. It's just some bizarre adult joke about Really? Are you going to let me get away with this? And and so, yes, it suddenly became this game, this contest of trying to push it. So it's a little bit like then um, Visionaries, the cartoon of Visionaries, in which a bunch of script writers realised that nobody was paying attention to what scripts they were writing. And so Visionaries became the, the, the Saturday morning cartoon that was a satire of Saturday morning cartoons. It, yeah, these, these things can sometimes produce gold, and in this case it did. So yes, there is a definite sort of snarkiness to the Emperor's new groove, which uh, is much appreciated from this commentator. So, yes, Ian, you didn't really get much of a pinch there, although you have had some fine film recommendations. If you watch the things you haven't seen after this, you'll be having a great night out at the movies. Uh, but in the meanwhile, why don't you tell us uh, about your F? Again, it's got to pick a film you could talk about at length, and this may be to the uh, induced boredom and nausea of my co-hosts. <laughs> Uh, so I, I brace the fact there will be a kind of <laughs> moving on uh, after I complete my ramble. Uh, I'm going to talk about Final Fantasy VII Advent Children. It's silence. <laughs> <laughs> Even the person who likes animation is just meh. Uh, it, of course, look, it, it's purely coming from my, from my fanboy origins of, of really being a PS1 player 
and actually genuinely pouring in probably over a hundred hours into playing Final Fantasy VII uh, at least three times, I think. Uh, and uh, just because the first time you're just kind of breezing through it, second time you're really gauge, sucking in the story. And boy, did I go down the well. Leo has said, look, when you have invested that much time in a video game, uh, of course you're an absurd fanboy. You, how can you not be unless you're insane? So, uh, and of course, this is, of course, the, the highest selling Final Fantasy game ever. That The fans have been baiting for years for Square Enix to go out and just remake this. And they're saying, no, we can't do that. And so another game outsells Final Fantasy VII. Otherwise, we just look desperate. But aware of how big Final Fantasy VII was, they did have a, on the 10th anniversary, they arranged a number of things to celebrate this. There were a number of other games set in the same universe that came out. And there was a sort of short story collection, at least. And there was also this this film that was hotly anticipated by fans who were just so hungry for more Final Fantasy VII, which was Advent Children. And my memory of it was more the time leading up to it. This is the day before you had proper you know, aggregate news sites. So you just have some fan who would build, you know, the Final Fantasy Advent Children website and he would collate the news there for you and you would just go there all the time to get more and more snippets of information because you were just so keen. And I think, I guess, kind of at the beginning of the film, there's a message from Final Fantasy VII's uh, original sort of author saying, you know, isn't it great that, we, you know, we can meet all these characters again? And for me, that's what it was. It was kind of you catching up. With his characters you know so well, like, how are you doing now, like a few years later? What's up with you guys? And I think they, they chose a very good arc of the central character who was always a bit of a misery guts. Kind of having a bit of a post-traumatic crisis about all. About everything he went through in the first film. And about how it, the, the, it's a harder world to live in because of everything they've endured. And feeling he can't quite pull it together. And he's not the sort of character who can emote and talk about these things. And it's just kind of the sort of the bond of, I hate this kind of sense of the bond of love these characters have because of the adventures they've been through and how, how they are genuinely there for each other. Uh, the actual story itself though, they, they bring back a character who's almost certainly killed in the, in the video game, which is quite amusing. And uh, Sephiroth returns, principal villain of the video game. But bringing him back, they've pretty much made him utterly nigh on invincible now. I mean, they, they killed his body and ripped his soul apart. He's back again in the film! My goodness, this character can, literally cannot die. He cannot be absorbed by the plant's live stream, so he will always return again in some form whatsoever. And, you know, I think the, the end fights do go on a bit too protracted in the end as well. But it was just so nice. It was so nice to catch up with all the guys again and see how they're all doing and for the world to be fleshed out a bit and go, oh, I can see where the setting now is for further into this. The artwork is pretty good. Uh, it's quite fun. Uh, Leo talks about the pointless dragon. There is a point to the dragon. They do kill the dragon. What are you talking about? That's in the, I mean, they released an extended cut later on, which actually altered some of the dialogue and put in some more scenes, more, more, a lot more character moments, that has to be said. And it does improve the film tremendously. Some of the dialogue changes make the film more understandable about what is going on. Uh, because that just was not clear in, in the original theatrical release. Maybe it's a translation problem again. I don't know. So uh, really, it's the extended cut version as well, which is as as a big part of my famous too. But it was like one of those films that when I eventually tracked down and saw it because it didn't obviously get a you know it's a it's a DVD release and extended version. Good luck finding that. Mail order is, is your best friend. Actually tracking down and seeing it again and getting a proper translation of it as well, not a dub version, and watching that, it just really I really fell back in love with Final Fantasy again. And that stirred up a lot of very fond memories. It did not make me fall in love with it enough to make me go back and play Final Fantasy 
seven again because that would be insane. But you know what? It was just so nice to uh, go back to that familiar planet again and meet those guys I spent so much time with fighting to save the world. Uh, so anyway, guys, uh, roll your eyes, tut, and move on. No, I mean, I, th- I, I played Final Fantasy VII, not quite as much. Actually, I gave up because I because uh, I, I played all the way through and then realised that I if I had done something ages ago, I could have got this extra cool character. And I was like, oh, for God's sake, I'm getting bored now. No, no, you can, um, you can, you can get the characters can be picked up at any time. Well, anyway, I, uh, eventually it picks up. I was enjoying it. And so, yes, it was actually, having seen, you know, the, the first Final Fantasy animated feature and went, uh, okay, that doesn't resemble in any way anything I've played. Um, it was, in fact, quite nice to see characters that I actually did remember. And, you know, I agree. It was, it was kind of nice to see them on in a beautifully kind of animated version because, you know, I only saw anything like that on the cutscenes. If you played the game, you played with weird blocky people that you moved around beautifully rendered backgrounds. Yes. Which was very strange. It's like, yeah, the backgrounds are gorgeous, but why do I look like some kind of mutant Lego man blobbing around? And then, ah, but the cutscene, I'm awesome again. It's a very strange hybrid period of time, because originally all the characters in the Final Fantasy games were 8-bit characters, big haired little dude, right. on a 2D background. 7 was 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 like, they they had, the, the, there were still bobble-headed characters when you move around the world. When you had to fight though, they were more much more realised looking 3D okay. characters. And in the cutscenes, they were different again, so you had three different modes yeah. of how your character it would look in the game. Yeah. I mean, that, the thing though, in terms of the character design though, it worked because they were so strong characters that even though you were seeing them effectively in different styles, it still kind of worked in a weird way. Um, so it was still fascinating, and I played it. And so, yeah, so I now I can't re- honestly remember much about the film. I remember watching going, oh, yeah, that's good. That was much more what I would imagine a Final Fantasy film should be. However, I've not watched it again, and I, I remember there was lots of fighting and jumping around and running around on top of on very yeah, high buildings. There's an awful lot of that, I do admit. And that's really all I can remember, to be honest. I can't really remember much about the plot. I don't know about help, but uh, I might be able to cast some light on why you can't remember that. If you saw the non-extended version, which is the version that I, of course, have seen, you may have been finding yourself going, OK, so it's happening. I'm not sure why it's happening or who's doing what to whom or for what reason, but stuff is definitely happening. So <laughs> yes. Let's call that an upside. And yeah, I mean, it's not so much that the dragon didn't have a point. It was just the fact that we didn't know where it had come from, why it was there, and when it was beaten, we didn't know why that was a good thing, really, because they didn't explain it to us. And that was our chief criticism, I think, me and the wife, of the film, was that everything happened, but we didn't know why. And we were like, yeah, it's fine, it's happening. We're, we're, it was we're, a boss we're, we're going fight! Along with it, but... Clearly it was a boss fight! Well, yes, clearly it was a boss fight, but... I think there's a, a thing where it's like, is that the logic we really want to bring into this universe? Is that's happening because it's a boss fight? I mean, yeah, okay, great, whatever. I, I just wanted any kind of a story that had a beginning, middle and end would have been fine. But uh, at the end of the day, maybe I was just being fussy about that. Yeah, it, I mean, it was definitely more. It was a bit, it was reminiscent of my experience of, watching Resident Evil and then watching Resident Evil Apocalypse and going, but surely that should just have been the Resident Evil movie. And this was far more like, I've watched Final Fantasy The Spirits Within. Now I'm watching this. 
surely this is far more what people might have expected a Final Fantasy. I mean, plot notwithstanding, this is far more, I think, yes, that's identifiably Final Fantasy. Whereas the other one, you had to do some sort of mental gymnastics to go, well, all the Final Fantasy games take place in different worlds. So this is just a Final Fantasy that happens to take place in a cinematic universe rather than in a computer game universe or something. Whereas this was like, a love letter to fans. And uh, I don't know, in the early 2000s, we seem to have a problem with writing a love letter to fans. We always wanted to do something different or sideways or, you know, and not really refer to the thing that fans were going to respond to. Uh, I don't know why that was, and I'm glad we're kind of over it. But there we go. Yes, an interesting entry. And uh, I take it this was this was probably about 2005 this came out, yes? Uh, five, six, because it was when I first came to yeah, Australia. Yeah, so, I mean, yes, there was very little chance when we came up to that year that we were going to spend a portion of the show talking about it then. So it's ideal for the list in that respect. I am now going to take my F, and my F is a film that uh, people may have seen it, but they may not have as well. Uh, it is uh, the early 80s uh, horror classic, From Beyond. Anyone with me on this? Hang on, hang on. It seems vaguely familiar. Talk uh, about well, it. Uh, while you're uh, uh, scrambling for the internet, uh, I will explain. Once there was a film called Reanimator, which introduced the world to an actor called Jeffrey Combs and an actress called Barbara Crampton. And the Reanimator became, of course, something of a cult classic. And so the, the makers of Reanimator determined that the awesome duo of Coombs and Crampton should return, not in a sequel to Reanimator, although such does exist. In fact, two sequels to Reanimator exist, but also in a kind of sideways, a sidequel, also based very loosely. Reanimator was very loosely based off an H.P. Lovecraft story. They had made um, another one in the 70s, which is so obscure, I've not seen it and I wouldn't be able to get hold of it. But this is, Reanimator is really the point at which H.P. Lovecraft started to become a thing. And From Beyond merely cemented that in being another bonkers movie. And the thing that stands out in my mind, which is very different and not something that horror does these days, is that... uh, in the film, Herbert West's, uh, not Herbert West, Jeffrey Coombs, Herbert West is his character in Reanimator. Jeffrey Coombs' character has made a, a, a machine that looks nothing so much like a pipe organ topped with giant tuning forks. And that when he pulls the stops out on this thing and then hits the big red button, the tuning forks vibrate at interdimensional frequencies, which make stop motion animated fish swim through the air. <laughs> and then he opens a portal into a world of uh, madness and terror, the like of which uh, we have never seen before um, and are unlikely to see again, given that horror movies don't do this sort of thing anymore. And it was this kind of blending of horror and kind of exploration science fantasy. And then there was this whole bit about uh, your pineal gland being a sense organ for these alternative realities and that while the world was vibrating in tune with them, your pineal gland went nuts and turned you into a crazy extrasensory zombie type monster that went round ravaging people and it all got very gory and and ridiculous but it is you know it's all the fun you won't be having in most of the horror movies that get released in this day and age and it is a bit of an eye-opener you've been a long-term fan of this film as i understand it because i know back in the college days you were talking to me about this film because doesn't the pineal gland come out a stalk or something 
Yes, it does in a completely ridiculous manner yes. due to the fact that the pineal so, gland is in fact at the back of the base. Well, it's because in, in the mythology of the, the mythology of the pineal gland, it's also the third eye in in the spiritual yeah. circles, which is like it's not uh, that's not at your scalp, but it's actually at the base of your spine. And uh, so, yes, I, I know you've seen this film and you've been a fan of it for a while, but I haven't seen it, I'm afraid, and I suppose it is going to be difficult to track down these days. Uh, actually, it's it, it, it kind of come and go. I just picked up a copy of it for a fiver, which is coming in the post, which I am looking forward to immensely. So you can get it now. Yes, I, I, I haven't seen. But looking at the, I'm just looking images. Oh my god, this thing looks absolute batshit crazy. And uh, I think I need to see it because I've, I've got a thing for kind of very inventive, kind of gra- kind of old horror films that have very strange effects. And this is not hold not holding back. I can see on numerous things going on here. So, um, yes, yeah. it, it kind of dances the line between horror fantasy and just plain straight out ridiculous. The bit where there, a, a swamp full of tentacles appears in the basement is uh, great fun and sort of un- unintentionally hilarious, but not scary at all. But then that you don't care because the imagination, wit, and invention that has been put into creating this low-budget horror movie with such gusto, it it more than makes you forgive the fact that it's not really all that. It's kind of... um, It's more of a romp than it is horrific. It's more of a a sort of uh, gleeful exploration of kind of uh, mischievous Gru than it is an actual horror movie. But yeah, it's, uh, it's a classic cult kind of movie and it's one of these it's it's one of the movies that kind of gets lost in the shuffle of the format generation regeneration because you know rights are complicated and who can be bothered and will anybody buy it and uh, we happen to be in a phase at the moment where the stars of a line and there are copies available on dvd but you could go to amazon on a different day and there is like a dvd version available but it's region one and it'll cost you 25 quid and you're like mm, maybe for a, a bit of frippery and fun that's a little bit much unless you're seriously into it so uh, i'm very glad to have, have tracked down a copy uh, right now which i shall be uh, watching over christmas time so uh, i guess we better move on due to the fact that i'm the only one that has seen this film although i now have left people other people with a hunger to see it and that is the most important thing justin what is your f to finish off our little alphabet journey today that film is face off ah yes of course uh, now we did briefly discuss this but i think it was at a time when there were a lot of films out Around about the end of the 90s, we had a lot of, a few years where it's like, oh, there's a lot to get through this year. So, uh, yeah, I I think that Face Off didn't really get the attention. I I assumed that we talked about it, so I was quite surprised that it actually hadn't. Uh, It did get a bit of a chat. We mentioned that it was there. We we talked about the fact it was a a retooled science fiction film. I think that was your main point. And I witted on about how it, how it's interesting to switch over that the, the bad guy dies, but then the guy playing the bad guys is the hero at the end. It's a very strange mental switch to see him die. Then get the girl at the end because he's had his face put back on. It's one of those films there. It's not, I would say, I don't know whether it's not the kind of things I normally watch, but I watching this and just was captivated by it. And it's a film I can watch again and again if it's ever it's on. And I think that there is something quite special about both actors in this 
because they really do this kind of nice job of almost doing an impersonation of each other, kind of. Even though the setting and the setup is crazy, it's believable the way their performances. I mean, you don't really, I suppose it has science fiction elements because we can't do that, but it doesn't really feel like that. It feels very much like a, a typical action film that just has this, this kind of shtick. And the way you just carried along with it, really, because it's just, I think it's, for me, it's just the performances, really. I, I, I believe those characters. I believe that they are playing, you know, they are pretending to be each other. And there's something very sinister about John Travolta in this, because he's playing, you know, he's playing the nice guy, or what seemingly the nice guy, but there's this undercurrent of menace all the way through. That is very believable. And, um, yeah, I, ju- I just think it's a great action film. It's got this kind of just interesting thing about it that just makes it, just lifts it just above your kind of typical storylines. Um, it's done very, very well. I mean, it's, it's John Woo, so it's very stylish. There's a couple of scenes I always remember with the kind of doves and the, you know, stuff in the church. And it's, it's, uh, it, it looks great. Great acting, you know, good action film, and it, it just—it's a—it's a good solid piece of work, I think, of that genre, but just with something else on top of it as well. Face Off is a film built off a rock, and that rock is, hey, Nicolas Cage is very Nicolas Cage, isn't he? And John Travolta—he's very John Travolta. What if we got the two, and then we kind of switched them and had characters who were played by both actors at different times, and the two actors were trying to take each other's energy and move it around and just try and swap things and create these crazy situations. And it's like, great. And it's like, so this is a science fiction movie then, because they don't look anything alike. They haven't got the same body type. They're completely different. It's like, no, 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 no. You, The audience will go with it because they'll want to go with it. I mean, we've talked already uh, in this uh, very series of, of Alphabet shows about willing suspension disbelief and how people don't anymore. And I think there's a possible reason that people totally willed their disbelief in Face Off. You know, I'm sure there are people around going, this is just stupid. That's fine. Those people, their souls aren't as high quality as everybody else's. So we can let them think what they want. Because really, the point here is that nobody really believes the the actual central conceit in actuality. But they're all willing to go with it because, gosh, doesn't it make for a fun ride? And I think that's what it is. You know, people believe it because... They go, well, if I didn't believe it, then we couldn't have, you know, Nicolas Cage and John Travolta doing all this crazy random stuff, which is just bonkers. And therefore, I'll believe it because I choose to accept that the world is a better place for me believing this preposterous bunch of tosh. So there we are. That's the basis of things that are all about things that just are blatantly not realistic, is that you have to make this conscious decision. The world is better off with me believing this rubbish than it would be if I didn't believe in it. So I'm going to believe in it. And that's, you know, isn't that the basis of all faith, really, Ian? (laughs) Well, you know, it's one of the few films that ends with the bad guy getting a good kick to the nuts. It's always very satisfying. Indeed. I mean, you can tell that by the end, they've kind of settled into the idea of people will either buy this or they won't. Because... At the end, after the bad guy's been defeated, it's like they, they build it up when they switch them over the first time. And then when they get to the end, it's like, and then we'll put you back in your own bodies in like two <laughs> seconds. Because it's like, yeah, yeah, you know, this was like a thing, right? It was just a conceit. 
if we could have had them both grip hold of a skull and go, oh, life would be so much easier if I was a criminal mastermind. <laughs> oh, well, I reckon I'd be really good at being an FBI agent. And then I'm sure people would have bought <laughs> that as well. Freaky face off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's just, yeah, you need the excuse whatever yeah. it is, and they chose to go for one that pretended to be somewhat quasi-not-really-scientific. But honestly, if it had been some film about a magic artefact that switches the play, yeah. people would still have gone with it, yeah. because the main body of the film is so good. Yeah, I think so, it's a classic yeah. example of, of you can get over a bit of a plot wiggle, a realism wiggle, if the emotionality of the story and the characters can pull you along. Yeah, I mean, John Woo was talking about emotions and how the characters had to be, in some emotional sense, real. I don't think that's actually true. I think John Woo's blowing smoke up his own bottom in that respect. I think what it is, is it's insane in a fun you know, way. I think it's it thematically, you know what I mean? It's like it doesn't work in any realism. In any realism sense, it doesn't work. But I think your audiences will forgive it. I mean, they could very easily have mishandled it, and it could have become a sticking point, and everyone would be going, well, it's so ridiculous, it's silly. It's a non-issue. It's a non-issue because of how it's handled. When you talk about a film that has a really good emotional base, face off, it doesn't. But the point is that Cage and Travolta both play games with that over the topness and have a kind of it built into their, their manner and their style in such a way that that's what carries it. It's like a, the cageness and Travolta-ness of those actors. And the fact of trying to say, yeah, what if you took Cage and put him in Travolta's body and vice versa? That whole thing. It's more to do with the actors and their screen personas than it is to do with any kind of so genuine it, it, it because the bulk of the film is spent with them switched are you saying at the beginning you've got Nicolas Cage being the bad guy is he channeling Travolta when he's being original Nick Cage before he switches and oh, becomes I think Cage? they totally devoted it I think yes what they did was they said well I have to play myself in a way that it'll be easy for you to imitate so I have to find a character who's a little bit, if you're Nicolas Cage, Travolta-y, so that when you are in my body, it seems like a through line. And similarly, you must play yourself in a way it'll be easy for me to imitate. And so they had to come up with this kind of two hybrid characters, which is me playing myself, but in a way it would be easy for you to rip off and vice versa, and then the actual point where they're switched, in which I am now playing John Travolta trapped in the body of Nicolas Cage, but it's all kind of a made-up thing, because the character themselves gives you all this. So they did sort of, you know, serious acting, actorly type stuff about this is how we're going to pull this off. It was like a sort of mind heist uh, on the audience that, you know, the, the parts, the characters had to be crafted in such a way that both actors could kind of, you could see the through line, which is, I mean, you know, that's a very interesting piece of acting work. I, I feel sufficiently inspired that I will go and watch Face Off now uh, in, in the evening because I only really saw it once when it was like initially out. I haven't really reviewed it since. So I think I will go off and of all the films you mentioned, that'll be the one I'm going to take a second take on. I feel quite sad that so far nobody's come up with something and I'm like, oh, I haven't seen that. In fact, the closest we've come is that I've never seen Lilo and Stitch. And if it's anything like, if it's half as good as The Emperor's New Group, I must run off and watch that. It, because it's got, I'll have it's a, got a lot of it in it, but not, it's not as funny, but it has touches of it. Yeah, cool. So I might uh, go off and see that. But yes, I hope that uh, in our, our little uh, journey there, uh, we have uh, given you something that... Uh, 
I, I think we have, I mean, you know, you call it scraping the bottom of the barrel, Ian. I call it giving people tips for something, you know, sometimes you're bored and you just want to watch a movie and it's not like a special event or something, but you'd like it to be something good or nice or interesting. And I hope we're giving people that kind of stuff. If we are or if we aren't, if people have something to say about that, where might they come and uh, wonder why it is we didn't talk about Firewall with me because we didn't at the time and we still haven't. Where might they go to complain about that, Ian? Well, uh, one place you can go and, and berate us for not talking about District 9 would be our Facebook page, which you can find on Facebook forward slash Revenge of the 80s Kids. And that's eight, it is as in numbers, 80s. Uh, please go there and like our page. It is our community hub. We'll put up links to our podcast there, as well as links we find interesting. But uh, podcasts are what it's all about. So for those who want to point your browser towards 80s Kids, and that's 80s as in letters, so E-I-G-H-T-I-S kids.podomat.com, uh, please go there and subscribe to our podcast. And do check out our Christmas episode if you haven't already seen it. Uh, and, of course, you can download it for dark reasons of your own or subscribe to the podcast aggregator of your choice. Uh, but this, anyway, most recent podcast can be found. Uh, for the legacy of our podcasts, you must go to... Uh, LeoStableford.com, where uh, now the entire 90s is available for your perusal, approval, and other things uh, that end in oval, as well as other stuff that I've written by the by and, and news about what I'm up to. Uh, but all of that is terribly verbal. And if you're not in the verbal mood, if you're in a more of image conscious mood, where might they go to see something uh, easier on the eye, Justin? Uh, well, that will be on my Deviant Art page, where there, there might be some images inspired by the Flintstones in in Viva Rock Vegas. Obviously, clearly, <laughs> we, we, something we should have included. And uh, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a Justin Wyatt at Deviant Art. I shouldn't have talked about Explorers. I should have talked about Ewoks Battle for Endor. It just seems <laughs> so <laughs> relevant right now. Um, Travesty. Yeah, no, it's G-H-I or G-H-I-J, one of the two. Uh, but anyway, you'll find out next time here on the Alphabet Strand of the 80s Kids. But for now, bye-bye. Farewell. Goodbye. Goodbye.